Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. My name is Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is Wednesday, October 27th, 2021, and it is my honor and pleasure to have with me an esteemed award-winning Palestinian journalist, Daoud Kutab. Daoud is, again, esteemed award-winning Palestinian journalist, the former Ferris Professor of Journalism at Princeton University. Um, he actually has a very long and wonderful bio. I will have a link to that. It will be posted with this podcast, so we won't go through any more of it here. Um, Daoud, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, thank you for I, having me. I, I, asked, um, I asked you to join us today, Daoud, because this is part of what is turning into a series of podcasts and, and some webinars that we're doing around Israel's decision announced last Friday to designate six prominent Palestinian human rights groups as terrorist organizations. Um, and I was very eager to have you um, on this podcast because you are one of the foremost experts in the world on a case um, that bears a lot of resemblance to these charges against the six organizations. Um, and it, it's a case that has, I think, gotten far too little attention and that can shed a lot of light uh, on why so many people are reacting with such suspicion and such, um, uh, su such really hostility towards this, this naming and shaming and, and really uh, delegitimizing of Palestinian groups. So this is the case of a guy named Mohammed Halabi. Um, and Mohammed Halabi is a Palestinian who worked in Gaza as an employee of the international NGO World Vision. So there's a lot to cover here. Um, maybe first off, can you just um, give our listeners, watchers, some background into what happened five years ago with the spectacular arrest uh, of this, this gentleman from Gaza? Yeah, in June 2016, uh, Mohammed Halabi, who was the um, director of the Gaza branch of World Vision International Triple $3 billion charity organization, and uh, that has been doing humanitarian work in Gaza, was doing his regular visits to Jerusalem to meet with his uh, uh, directors there. And on his way back to Gaza, he was arrested. Uh, and he was held for 55 days in which he had no access to a lawyer or nothing. He was under a lot of pressure, uh, torture. And outside, which he didn't know, the media, the Israeli media and the international media was full of stories saying that the Israelis have discovered uh, a conspiracy in which money that was supposed to go to humanitarian uh, aid to help uh, Palestinians in Gaza was being funneled to, uh, to, to terrorist organizations like Hamas and others to the tune of $50 million over a number of years. Now, you know, I mean, the first answer from World Vision was that our entire budget for the last so many years doesn't even reach 50 million, but put that aside. So anyway, during this, he was questioned, he was tortured, he lost 45% of his, his ability to hear. And uh, when he first came to in front of a, a judge, uh, the Israelis um, decided that he is being um, charged with treason. And treason in, in Israeli policy is like a 20 year term and you cannot be released on, uh, on bail. And so that began uh, five and a half years and still going on, arrest in which basically he's held hostage so that he would make a confession of some kind 
and they would trade him for whatever time he spent in jail. And they've tried that, and they've been doing that for the last uh, uh, five and a half years. Meanwhile, 166 uh, sessions of the court uh, was held, most of the time in secret. Most of the evidence has been in secret. Some of the information that has come out has come out in a, in a very kind of dribble way here and there. But basically, there has been uh, nothing of substance that came out. More importantly, the organization, World Vision, which was doing a lot of work and is a huge organization with money from Australia, you know, went crazy. They hired the best investigators in the world. They hired the best auditing companies in the world. And they came and they did a forensic study of every penny that came into Gaza. And in the end, they came out, nothing was moved. Nothing was diverted. Nothing was moved to the to the uh, so-called terrorist organizations. And there was nothing there. And yet, you know, everything was held in secret. And every time anybody tried and the lawyer tried to kind of push this, the Israel said, no, this is, there is classified information, secret information. We cannot open up the documentation. Lawyers have gag orders. They are not allowed to talk to anybody and so on and so forth until this day. The case finally ended uh, this summer and even a more bizarre decision was made. The, uh, court accepted the request by the Israeli prosecutor that said, uh, you only can write a defense summary of 20 pages. And more importantly, this cannot be done in your office. You have to come and do it here in, on the computer of the prosecutor and you cannot take a copy of your own defense summary. This is like unbelievable, unexpected. And that, that has been the, you know, then they extended the 20 pages to 60 pages, but basically he still had to type his own closing argument, which he has no copy of until this moment uh, on the computer of basically the other side. And that's, that's how things have been. Now, the point that, the most important point, in fact, it was made so cleverly yesterday or two days ago by the Jerusalem Post. The, whole, the only reason that this has been held in secret and all this idea of secrecy and classified information, all that is because they have nothing. It's a big lie, one big Pinocchio. And uh, the moment that they you know, come out with the result and, you know, the closing summary was done in September. Now we're almost November and still he's in jail. And every time he asked to be released, if he went to the high court, even on bail, they said, no, 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 no. This is a, a case of treason and a 20-year jail and we cannot leave him go to, you know, be released on bail. And the most important part of all of this is that from day one, the Israeli prosecutor has been offering him a plea bargain. Confess to something, tell us something about your boss in Jerusalem, give us any information, make a confession of something World Vision did in Jenin or anywhere, and you'll be released, you'll be free. And they, they know the record, 98%, 97% of Palestinians who are arrested normally sign a plea agreement just to get out of jail. They would confess to having killed John Kennedy for or whatever, just so that they could get out of jail. And so, uh, but this man, of all the different Palestinians, was a stubborn Gazan who said, uh-uh, 
I'm not confessing. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not going to get in trouble. I'm not going to do something to my own name or to the name of my organization. Find something else. Try me, but I'm not going to confess. I'm not going to accept the plea bargain. They've made 10 offers over the last five years of a plea bargain, which he would be scot-free. And he's chose to stay in prison and to test, to test this stupid Israeli system that only allows Israelis to win cases based on a plea bargain. And now they're, they don't know what to do. And now comes the six organizations being accused of, of terrorism. And I think his case, as you said in the beginning, exposes that. So it's interesting. I, I, I do want to quote, I have the Jerusalem Post quote or a quote from this editorial. It was an editorial on October 23rd in the Jerusalem Post commenting on the NGO designations and basically saying Israel has to produce the evidence. It was a, a remarkably skeptical tone given this the Jerusalem Post. But part of the part about Halabi, and I want to read this, they said, quote, Halabi has been in jail for more than five years and has endured 165 court sessions without any credible, credible evidence brought against him. He has been denied bail and his trial has been declared secret without any credible reason, except possibly to hide the fact that the prosecutor is afraid of being exposed for unjustly keeping an innocent man in jail for such a long time. Those are the words of the Jerusalem Post in their editorial, not a Palestinian human rights defender, which I think is just remarkable. Um, the, the context, this idea of using terrorism to, to besmirch the reputation of organizations doing work that challenges Israeli policy. And you wrote about this and he talked about it. You, you interviewed him and I'll, I'll have a link to that interview. I don't know if that's something that you want to talk about at all. You know, why sure. Mr. Halabi sure. believes his organization um, and himself have been targeted this way, which I think, again, casts light on the choice of these six NGOs that were designated on Friday. You know, I've written a piece called The Three Scarecrows that the Israelis, and scarecrows are usually a, a dummy, you know, a, a mannequin, a decoy, and the birds, you know, when it's seeding time, they are afraid of this and they stay away. But the moment the birds or anybody else realizes that this is just a scarecrow, it's not a human being, then they're caught. And I think the Israelis have been using three different scarecrows, security, terrorism, and anti-Semitism. Anytime anybody complains, criticizes Israel, they figure out which one is the best scarecrow and they throw them at that person. And most people, you know, who, I mean, World Vision, as I said, $3 billion charity, they're not going to take chances. And as a result, the humanitarian work that they were doing was stopped because, oh my God, you know, something must be wrong. We cannot take a chance and, and hurt our own reputation. So as long as they can get away with it, with people who agree to confess, agree to a plea bargain, they're fine. They didn't expect that Muhammad al-Halabi would stay in jail five and a half years and he would, you know, uh, challenge them to prove what they're uh, trying to do. And they have nothing. And they kept on searching all kinds of places. The funniest part, story, uh, Laura, is the confession. They said they have a confession. Wow. Okay, so what's this confession? Uh, they brought the confession in and lo and behold, it was a photocopy. And so, you know, the lawyer says, okay, fine, where is the original? Well, we lost the original. Okay, the Israeli government and security, such great, you know, they, they, they lost the original. Okay, let's bring a forensic expert. 
and they brought a, in a forensic expert who looked at the photocopy and he said, you know, this was doctored. There's some, there's some words that were changed here. And, and so the lawyer and Mohammed Halabi actually uh, put in a request to the fraud unit in the Israeli army or government. There's fraud. I mean, some Israeli prosecutor is producing a document that they actually doctored and they're producing it as evidence and it's a photocopy. That's their biggest, you know, their biggest uh, game changer is a photocopy of a, an alleged uh, confession. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we have a huge problem of credibility with Israel. So, so we had a little break there. We lost Daoud. That was a technical problem. So, Daoud, you were talking about the credibility problem with Israel and the evidence that it's presenting. Do you want to just finish that thought? Well, the problem is that the Israelis are so... Uh, have such a uh, well-oiled machine in their military that they have been able to get most people in jail, either using administrative detention or getting them to plea. And so they're not used to people uh, not accepting their gain. And I think they're in for a big surprise with these uh, human rights organizations because they're all organizations that know very well the rules of the game. And I expect that they will not be uh, cooperating at all with the Israelis. And so if they're going to pursue this so-called claim of being a terrorist organization, they have a very high bar to, to, to cross, especially because of the Mohammed Halabi case and the way that it proved to be a, a case that fell apart when people are not agreeing to plea bargain with them. Um, you know, the Israelis have, a, you know, as the system is so... Uh, so well, so efficient. Whoever they don't like, they bring them in, put them in jail, and sooner or later, these people will say whatever the Israeli interrogators want so that they can get out of jail or get a reduced sentence or whatever. Uh, now we're seeing people who are saying, wait a minute, why should I confess? Okay, you know, I'll have to bear a little bit. I'll have to uh, uh, take a chance. You know, even... Lawyers are often uh, suggesting to them, just take a plea and go home. It doesn't matter to you. Uh, Mohammed Halabi was a different guy. Right, and, and uh, uh, two things. I wanna raise another case. You know, one thing that's, that strikes me is, you know, I, I remember when Mohammed Halabi was, was arrested and it wasn't just that it was in the press. He was effectively convicted in the press by Israel. Oh, yeah. He was tried, oh, yeah. convicted. And, and, and the alleged association of world vision with terrorism is now a talking point for, the, the, for those who want to argue that all human rights, all advocacy and solidarity with Palestinians is indistinguishable from terrorism. And there was another case at the same time, there was another guy who was arrested, a guy named Wahid Abdullah Al-Burj, who is also from Gaza and worked for UNDP. And he is a case of exactly what you're saying. He was arrested. He was part of the headlines of we've caught a terrorist agent, right? There, it wasn't even like allegations, you know, tried and convicted. And ultimately, as I understand it, he ended up accepting a plea bargain where he was sentenced to time served and effectively convicted of inadvertently helping Hamas with his lawyer in the plea bargains, you know, essentially saying he, he admitted no wrongdoing because he didn't do anything wrong, but they just needed a plea bargain, which now lets them make the public case that, look, a UN agency was implicated in terror, right? It doesn't matter how the charges came out. That's the, the, the you had the headlines and a plea bargain. 
Can you talk a little bit about the political um, ramifications? You talked about the scarecrows, right? So World Vision now, if you Google it, World Vision Israel, you get a hundred articles or more, more about World Vision and terrorism. Um, the, the reputational goal here, the goals in terms of quashing free speech, curbing the activities, curbing the financing that allow these groups to operate. Can you talk about that side of this? Sure. Now, when, when this case started, uh, World Vision um, was uh, one of the strongest, biggest uh, contributors to humanitarian aid. At the same time, in the Netanyahu government were really trying to pressure Hamas to uh, to release prisoners, to make a prisoner exchange or whatever. And I remember, if you remember those times, they were saying, we don't want to starve Palestinians, we just want to put them on a diet, you know, that type of thing. So they were involved in a very strong uh, clash with Hamas, and they didn't want uh, the public, the Palestinian public, to be relaxed. They wanted the public to put pressure on Hamas to do whatever the Israelis wanted. And so by doing this, they actually succeeded because World Vision since then has not spent a penny in Gaza. So the millions of dollars that were spent to help the uh, farmers, to help the uh, families with children who are needed uh, to go to get cancer duty, to help the poor, to help the uh, uh, the farm, the um, the fishermen, all of these projects were stopped. And so, in a way, the Israelis succeeded initially in their goal of of putting even further pressure on the public by having the public, you know starve or get on a diet and as a result to put pressure on Hamas. Of course, Hamas didn't buckle and uh, but the Israelis used that for that reason. They didn't care about World Vision or they didn't care about Mohammed Alami. They know they had nothing on him. They thought, well, you know, we'll get him uh, out of jail and he will plea and whatever. They didn't expect that what will happen happened. They didn't expect that a man who's innocent would be willing to stay in jail just to protect his organization's reputation and his own reputation. So that, I think, is a very interesting case that has kind of exposed these scarecrows, these lies that the Israelis have been using. Now, financially, you know, let's jump into the current situation. The Israelis have been putting pressure on European countries, on the European Union, for years to stop funding Al-Haq, to stop funding uh, Damir, to stop funding all these organizations that now are all of a sudden being accused of, of being terrorist organization. And why, you know, Al-Haq has been around 40 years. They've worked with Israeli human rights organizations. They won international awards. Now you just realize that they were a terrorist organization. When did they start doing this terrorism? Now, one of the problems we have, uh, I know I'm shifting a little bit, so I don't know if that messes you up, but one of the problems we have is that the Israelis don't really, I mean, their selling point is that every Palestinian is a terrorist unless proven otherwise. So it's very easy to say uh, Muhammad al-Halabi is a terrorist. It's very easy to say al-Haq is a terrorist because that's how it is. Now, let me take it to journalists, okay? Palestinian journalists working for a Palestinian newspaper in the West Bank have never been recognized as journalists. Never. We've done everything we can just to get the Israelis to issue a press card saying the Al-Qutab is a journalist. That's all. You know, so if I stop, I'm stopped by a soldier taking pictures, I can show them my deal. If you work for the BBC, yeah, they'll give you a card. If you work for even Al Jazeera, they'll give you a card. But if you work for Al Ayam or if you work for Watan TV or if you work for even Palestine TV, 
you don't exist because you're a terrorist. Everybody's a terrorist unless proven otherwise. And this is the problem that, that we have. I'll give you an example. Let's just say for, for just argument's sake, that somebody 30 years ago uh, belonged to PFLP and was arrested, spent two years in jail, was released and finished his duty, okay? Does that person have a, a name tag on him for the rest of his life as being a terrorist? Does that mean that every single Palestinian, we have about a million Palestinians who've gone through the Israeli jails. So every Palestinian who has been accused, who has been, in, and you wonders have been said about him, even though he wasn't even charged, he was arrested without trial because secret evidence said that they were, uh, you know, terrorists. All these people are terrorists. So you have a million terrorists now, they cannot do a job, they cannot work because they're terrorists. This is the mentality that the Israelis have. And un unfortunately, many Israelis actually believe that. Uh, I talked to really senior Israeli journalists some of them who actually were duped by the government to publish these big stories. And I said, you know, you have a responsibility. You ran a story about Muhammad al-Halabi. Now we know the truth. You know there's no evidence against him. Why don't you correct the record? They won't. Oh, we know the arm, the Sheen Bet, the security says that they, they really think he is terrorist. Excuse me, you're a journalist? Um, no, 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 but we, we trust them. Well, we, we're not sure, but we're not, we're not going to go against the government. And that's the journalists. And the same applies to judges. Judges, why do you think it's taken five years? Because the judge knows that he's innocent, but doesn't want to go against the government. 98% of the cases have been ruled in that way. They're not going to be part of that 2% of, you know, uh, you know, a potentially one judge in, you know, out of a thousand who said, yeah, maybe this guy is really innocent and he should be released. So we have a problem in credibility for sure. And also we have a problem in, in the bullying effect of the Israeli army and security using these scarecrow tactics to scare not only the public, but also judges, prosecutors, and, and, and the media to all play the two and play the game. Right. And I mean, the using as soon as you bring up the word terrorism, you know, everyone, you know, that takes a step back. Right. I mean, in, in the post 9-11 world, particularly, you know, as soon as you brought up accusations of terrorism, everything sort of escalates to a much higher level. I don't know. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about how you saw the international community um, accepting or judging or maybe never. I, I still haven't seen any real questioning of Israel's treatment of Mohammed Halabi. There was the, Austra the Australian government did their own research on this, their own investigation, World Vision did. Mm -hmm. And yet there seems to be this deference, which says, well, we didn't find any evidence, but you still have to play it out. Um, th th there's this uh, seems to be a reluctance to, to call bullshit, um, to, be very, yes. to be very simple yes. about it. And I'm, I'm curious how you, how you see that and also how you see it playing out with these six Palestinian NGOs, because you know, the concern I think for a lot of us is that regardless of whether there's any, you know, whether they arrest anybody, they haven't arrested anyone, you know, they've declared them terrorists, but you know, terrorist organizations, but nobody's like been arrested as a terrorist, which tells you a lot. But assuming that setting aside the, if somebody decides to play, take the Muhammad Halabi role, if they're arrested and not, you know, refuse to give in, the, the reputational harm, if the world just accepts this or says, well, we are asking for clarifications, but doesn't call bullshit, um, you know, how that looks um, for the future. 
You know, I'm, I talk a lot to Muhammad's father who lives in Gaza. And Muhammad's father is an amazing, amazing, amazing father. Every single day he wakes up and all he wants to do is get his son out of jail. All he wants to do is contact Hadi Amr, contact the security, U.S. Secretary General, you know, Biden's office. Can you help me find somebody to get, uh, you know, my message to so and so? He's an amazing guy. So, like he was telling me, don't you think World Vision should be saying something? I said, yes, for sure. But do you want them to be on your shit list now? I mean, you know, they, you don't need enemies. You need the World Vision to stay on your side, of course. We want the World Vision to speak up, but they're not going to speak up. They're saying this is a trial. Once the trial makes a decision, we'll speak. But it's it's under, you know, it's being discussed. It's being, you know, it's being educated. Yes, we're not happy. We really feel for Muhammad, but we have to wait. And it's it's shameful. It's shameful that they take this position. But at the same time, it's not just them. Everybody else. Everybody else is doing the same. And, you know, I start with the Israeli journalists. I start with the Israeli jurists. I start with the, the Israeli Bar Association, which let an Israeli lawyer have to type the, uh, the closing argument on the, on the uh, other side's uh, computer. What is it? What, I mean, imagine if this was done anywhere else. Imagine if there was a, a Jewish or Israeli uh, having to do that. In, in a case in Australia or in in in, uh, in Germany or something, they would you know this would be anti-Semitism and this this and that, but here because it's security and because it's terrorism, well you know we're not sure he might be a terrorist. We can't you know until the judge in the court decides we can't do anything. So it's a rotating you know uh, chicken and an egg, and we can't get out of it. It, it strikes me that maybe maybe the fundamental challenge is the international community's continued deference to the idea that Israel has a rule of law when it comes to Palestinians and that Palestinians actually have access to justice through the Israeli court system, um, which is pretty striking after 53 years of occupation and, you know, the, the, the data would show whether you're in the if you're in the West Bank under the military court system, you lose 99% of the time or something. And a high court of justice that, that continually makes, you know, politicized rulings that never challenge Israeli policy. Um, I mean, I don't know if you want to comment on that. I mean, the, what, what kind of worries me looking ahead for these NGOs is I would anticipate a lot of the international community saying, well, they, ha they have to go through the appeal, they can defend themselves, et cetera, as if there's any possibility of them getting a fair hearing and having their case adjudicated fairly in a system that is designed to privilege the Israeli political goals over their basic rights. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, thank God this time at least, the Israeli media is not playing around unless uh, they're so inefficient that they're not even giving the Israeli media any lies. But, uh, you know, Mohammed Halabi's case, he was already tried and convicted day one by the Israeli media. At least this time, yes, you know, I think the, the strength of some of the Israeli human rights organizations and their strong stand, I think, you know, made people start to think. But, you know, they... They have the pretense, this is the camouflage, they have the pretense 
our legal system. They have a pretense of high court. They have a pretense of an appeal process. You know, they have all these trappings that that look good from an outsider until you kind of dig into it and you find that it's all, there is nothing there, just a scarecrow. There's no real human being that's standing there. It's just a, a mannequin. And, and people don't really realize that. And a few who do understand it, but even those who understand it, you know, don't want to rock the boat, don't want to anger the Israelis, you know, and the, the Bennett government is held by one vote and they haven't voted on the uh, budget. And, you know, you know, all these excuses are being made to kind of cover up for the Israelis. And, you know, we were told, we weren't told, they, they informed the, the army, they didn't inform the states, uh, the Secretary of State's office. All these things are not the story. The story is you're creating, fabricating lies against these people without any evidence. Without any, this time, you know, normally in the Muhammad case, they actually had numbers, 50 million and all this. With this, we don't know. You know, what did the women's organization do to be labeled a terrorist? What did the agricultural committee do? What did the defense of children do? You know, <laughs> all these organizations have very specific mandate and they have very specific work and the work is very public. They're not hiding what they're doing. But the fact is, again, I have to say, Palestinians are a terrorist unless proven otherwise. You know, you have to always prove that you're not a terrorist. Well, and, and with these groups, I mean, if you if you look at the publications of the Ministry of Strategic Affairs and, and, and groups like NGO Monitor, for years, it's what you were talking about before. If someone has a any link at any point in their lives or anyone in their organization has any link anywhere to the PFL. Or their family. Or their family. <laughs> the, the argument for years has been, it doesn't matter whether the organization is doing anything in any way related to terror. We've now got you on this technicality. You're a terrorist organization. That has been the argument that they've been making for years. This is just an escalation. Um, as, as a last question, I don't know, maybe this is a little bit provocative, but maybe a little bit hopeful. You know, I was that Jerusalem Post article, um, which was talking about evidence and raised the Halabi case, made me wonder. You know, if on the one hand the attack, uh, the the charges against against Halabi and and the guy from UNDP were kind of a hint at what was to come, or even a dress rehearsal, has the fact that the Halabi case has gone on for so long and there's such skepticism even amongst Israelis that any guilt has that in some ways turned into a liability for them in defending this latest act, which would be an, an interesting kind of own goal or overreach. Um, and on the flip side, does this act, this attack on the NGOs draw, put some light on the Halabi case that might lead to a, the guy finally getting out of jail? And we'll end you with know, this. You know, his father, you know, called me yesterday and he asked me that question. I said, you know, it could go both ways. It could make them more stubborn and, and because if they release Muhammad Halabi, then they're basically saying we made a mistake. So if you made a mistake then, maybe you're making a mistake now on the one hand. On the other hand, yes, it, it certainly uh, has, you know, could help uh, in, in, in getting him out of jail because uh, there's much more press now being uh, spoken about him. And, and as uh, Yair Lapid said, 
it seems that in Israel it's no longer between hawks and doves. It's between those who really believe in democracy genuinely and those who don't. And uh, that's why a very right-wing paper like the Jerusalem Post has no problems in defending Halabi, not because they support Palestinians, but because they're understanding that this is a slippery slope and that the Israelis are going downhill on the democracy issue. And now it's uh, Mohammed Halabi. Next week, it's going to be Moshe somebody. And it's going to be the Israelis who are also paying the price if they're not already for this lack of democracy and this uh, um, corruption of democracy and the judicial system to basically suit whoever's in power. And I think that's why the Jerusalem Post probably wrote that article, not of love for the Palestinians or whatever, but I think they're really understanding that the slippery slope in, in democracy and in, in freedom of uh, the, the, the basically the right for, for defendants to protect themselves and so on, can come back and, and bite them. As you know, we saw that famous story of they came after the Jew, they came after the communists, they came after this and so on. And so, yes, I mean, I think there are voices are still, they're still small and few in between, but you know, they need to be strengthened. And I think the US position has to be really much stronger because that sends a very strong message to Israelis, you know, to Bennett and to Ghana, Gantz and all the others, what are you guys doing? You're doing, you know, what are you doing? Yeah, and, and I want to thank you for that. That, that was a, a great way to end. I want to add really quick, um, when you talk about the slippery slope, yesterday when I talked to Omar Shaker, for people who listen to that podcast, I referenced and then I took back because I couldn't find the headline and I don't ever want to say anything that's not true and have somebody sue me. I referenced um, what I what I thought I had seen about Imtirtsu going after Israelis under the anti-terror law for their support and solidarity with the Palestinian NGOs. Um, as soon as I, that podcast ended, I went back and did more research and I found the headline and it is absolutely true. Um, I posted the link to the article in uh, the podcast uh, yesterday, the text. So, you know, talking about the slippery slope. So on Friday, it was targeting these Palestinian NGOs. This week, it is complaints lodged by a right-wing Israeli organization against a range of Israelis from the left, including a member of Knesset, who's on the left, who's defended the Palestinian NGOs, and the heads and, and staff of, of major Palestinian human rights organizations. So you think, you know, the, 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 the sights of this weapon can be turned really on anyone. Um, and at yes. this point, it is turned very clearly on anyone who is, is critical of Israel or defends Palestinian rights. Um, with that, we're going to end. Dawood, thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's very late where you are. Thank you for joining me today. Your experience, I think, offers a powerful context for people to understand this story. For people who want to learn more, I'm going to post a bunch of links to things that Dawood has written about this, along with the uh, the summary, the, the little blurb about this that'll go with the, the podcast. So please click through and read them. These are some really, it's, it's, it's an incredible story. It's Kafka-esque, um, really. Um, for our audience, thanks again for listening and watching. Um, as always, I want to remind you to subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. We are posting new content almost every single day. Um, you can get us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And also check our website, www.fmep.org. We're going to be doing more podcasts and webinars and other things on this and other topics. Um, so with that, um, thank you, Daoud. Um, thank you very much. I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Mm -hmm.